That was amazing. Yeah, that, that was really great. I'm so glad that you made it for this one, that you were here today. Oh, I'm excited. I, I mean, I, I've enjoyed every episode. I mean, I enjoy doing this, period. But that conversation really and i mean i'm definitely like always questioning my thoughts and my beliefs where i'm at like i always try to look at like how i perceive life but that this individual peg yeah like really broke things down in regards to like like spirituality or yep. god or like moving past that concept like just finding something that that works and like it might start off slow but i promise to the viewers that if you listen to this all the way through like you're really gonna get something out of it. this is my like probably my favorite recording i've done really yeah the, the, the whole time i kept looking at nate and and i was like he's i think he's loving this i think he's loving this yeah. and you were that's awesome yeah. no so much of what she said when she was talking you'll hear me guys i keep going wow okay oh yeah you were like you know what I mean? You were like, damn, like she's dropping bombs on She was on. kind of blowing my mind. Yeah, and she really like her. Yeah. her I was like, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's no. beautiful. I say that so many times. And she's so highly intelligent. I don't often get intimidated. But there were a few times when I was starting to speak, when I was like, I'm as smart as I think I am, right? Because yeah. <laughs> this woman will know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, she just, I don't even know. Like, well, I'm so glad you enjoyed that one so much. That was yeah. a great one. You guys, listen, if you listen to it in pieces, listen to it in pieces, listen to it 20 minutes at a time, listen to the whole thing. Yeah. But you, ha yeah, you have to listen to this whole episode. It will stir something up in you. For sure. It has to. Like, it, yeah. I, I didn't want to stop talking to her. I know. Yeah, we got an hour and a half in, and Nate was yeah. like, I could talk to you all day. Yeah, yeah, that's not what I had was trying to do today, you yeah. know what I mean? But, yeah, I was like, yeah, I, I'm like, like, it was one of those things where, like, I'm not really thinking about the time, you know what I mean? Right, I know, that's I'm like, how I felt, too. Yeah, I'm like, can we, no. <laughs> I know, I can tell when you start thinking that. Yeah. He starts, like, sitting back in his chair and looking at his phone, and I'm like, oh, my God, Nate needs to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you guys are going to love today's episode, Dr. Peg O'Connor, but she said call her Peg. Yeah, call she wrote Peg. this great book. Higher and Friendly Powers, mm -hmm. and I didn't know that Bill Wilson derived a lot of his concepts around higher power from a previous writing, mm -hmm. and this philosopher's writings were very open about the spiritual context, and Bill Wilson kind of narrowed it a little mm -hmm. to a more traditional Christian feeling, and she talks about the original expansive nature of higher power and how anybody listening, if you're struggling with the concept of a higher power in 12 step, which many people are, mm -hmm. that this is how you can not even just get around that or ignore that, but, but move into that and find a power that works for you. That is ge uh, generative and comes from within you. What she said that I loved is that we are the authors of our own higher power. Mm -hmm. We create it. And as many individuals as there are, there can be that many higher powers. And there's not like a right one. I just love that. No, I don't think there's, I don't think, yeah. In regards to that, I don't think there's a right anything. I just want it works for you. Right. Um, okay, guys. And the Nod Pod shout out of the week. This one was so moving. So last week, you guys loved Brittany's episode, The Hypnotherapist. I got so much amazing feedback about that. She got a lot of amazing feedback about that. And one person in particular on Instagram, another Amanda with a little upside down smiley face, Rips and Tides is her Instagram name, after this episode actually added to her bio, proud member of the Nod Pod, and mentioned Chasing Heroin. And Amanda, thank you so much. Like, I love that. The, the Nod Pod is like all inclusive and I want it to be like one big online community of recovery. Isn't that cool? 
I think that's really rad. Yeah, that, that's cool that, that you did that. I've, I've seen people do that various times, and I'm like, and they don't even tell me that they did it. I'm like, I find it random. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. if you do add us, though, by the way, because I didn't see, it doesn't notify me anymore. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, no. so DM me if you guys add Nodpod to your bio. I would love to see that. That would be so cool. Yeah, it's so cool when they do that. And yeah. Like, I'll check it out. <laughs> we start like a movement, man. And, you know, you started, you All did right. that. You started that. And you. Well, yeah, I mean, I was here, but you said yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a great idea. I mean, you know, not, I mean, it's catchy. It's catchy. Yeah. So, and uh, so Nate just got back out of detox yesterday and our next episode, we'll talk about it, but he's back and he's feeling yeah. good, right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel okay. I mean, I have my moments. I mean, my anxiety is through the roof. My mind is racing. I mean, I've got some post-acute shit going on, you know what I mean? But I'm like pushing forward doing what i gotta yeah. do i mean to the best of my ability you know totally. what i mean i'm not gonna tell you i'm 100 percent because i'm not you know what i mean some yeah. days i feel like i'm losing my fucking mind but but here you are yeah i'm here okay all right so we'll catch up with him next week um about all of that and thank you guys for listening yep thanks and william james talks about you know conversions he said james it feels like it's caused by an external source because it's so big and so massive. Like here was Bill Wilson saying, I don't want to drink anymore. Or here's someone saying, I now believe in God. It makes it tempting to think that an external force like a God is doing something to you. And James says, we're not licensed to, to claim that. The most we can say is that conversions are psychological processes. Every person can author their own incredible change, but you need to have something higher or friendly that you can use to begin to change yourself. So as higher powers, he said, anything will do so long as it's large enough to help you take the next step. I have a little demon pug puppy named Tank, and he is so cute. It's like impossible to get mad at him. Oh shoot, are you there? I'm here. Okay, okay. It's like impossible to get mad at him, and he's obsessed with Nate, but when Nate comes over, he just goes, he's so insane, he can't even be here. He's just like crazy, 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 crazy. <laughs> and then you hear his, I'll hear his nails running around. Oh, he, he, he turns into a psycho. He's psychotic. Yeah. My husband says he's 88% love, 12% zoomies. Oh, uh, but when they're puppies, you just got to go with it because there's nothing better than puppy zoomies. No, he's so cute. He's so adorable. He, I can't ever get mad at he him. He has a fat roll on his nose. <laughs> I just want to point that out. And on top of no, his head. No, no fat shaming on this podcast. Exactly. No, <laughs> no, 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 no I'm saying like that's how cute he is. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Heroin. Thank you so much. My name is Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. Hey, guys. My name is Nate. I'm an addict in recovery. My recovery date is December 3rd, 2022. Yes, sir. So glad to have you back. Oh, yeah, glad to be back. Thank you. And I'm very excited to be interviewing. She said don't call her doctor, but she is a doctor. But she said don't call her doctor. Dr. O'Connor, but Peg, is with us today. She wrote a book called Higher and Friendly Powers which I think you guys, I know you guys are going to love because we've had many conversations on this show with me and Nate about the concept of higher power in 12-step and how that can be 
dissuading to some people to even embarking on the 12-step journey. And of course, 12-step is one of like the primary modalities of recovery that's out there. And then when you hear that it might be faith-based or God-based, it can be a bit of a turnoff. And so you wrote this book, which was an attempt to demystify some of these ideas, right? What, what would you say? So I would say I wrote this book for me and people like me. So I had about a 20-year itch to scratch on the concept of God as higher power in Alcoholics Anonymous. So as a young person, when I was about 18 or 19, I went to my first AA meeting. And so I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I went to my first AA meeting and I walked in and listened to the 12 steps and listened to how it worked. And I wanted to run out right away because that concept of God didn't resonate with me. I had been raised Catholic and I had gone to 12 years of Catholic school so my theology was God is punishing, God is always watching, and God is always judging. It was not a friendly, all-loving God. And so I couldn't get my mind around, how am I supposed to let this being lift my desire to drink or help me turn my life around? It was not going to happen. Um, and so I did end up sobering up without AA, without any treatment. But in the back of my mind was this, I think AA can be really useful for people because I love the social dimension of it. I love it when a group of us addicts is together and we're talking to each other and we're being real and we're learning about ourselves by hearing the stories of others. We're learning about ourselves when someone notices things about us, about how we've changed. But the notion of God still was a turnoff for me. Okay. And I figured it would be for people who were spiritual, but not religious. So right. I wanted to kind of, what's a good word to use here, recover or rehabilitate that notion of higher power and go back to the original source of that expression. The expression was higher power or higher powers or friendly powers. So when Bill Wilson wrote the 12 Steps, the friendly dropped out right. and the plural powers dropped out. And I and, wanted to bring them back. And I, and that's so cool to me because I didn't, I didn't know that. Like I know a decent amount about 12 step and I've obviously, or about AA, like I've read the book and I've done the steps and, you know, I've gone through that stuff, you know, been in the program eight years and I had never heard of this original source. And so I want to talk about that before we do that though, let's back up a little bit. And I would love to hear about, how you got started drinking, using, and when you got sober? Like what, what was the path for you from childhood to drinking, to using, to stopping? So my path in some ways is, is like many others. I started young. I started by happenstance. My first drink was at the reception after my grandmother's funeral. And I was helping to clean up, you know, the hospitality, the, the plates and the, and the beverages. And there was a full glass of something. I didn't know what it was. So I just threw it back and it was horrible and splendid all at the same time. Um, and later I came to understand, oh, that was a glass of scotch I just tossed back. Ew. Yay. Yay for me. And um, I started drinking heavily because I had the sense already that I was queer. So this is uh, Listeners, you can't see me, but I'm 57 years old and I'm a total Q-tip hair. I am whiteheaded. <laughs> and so being in a Catholic context in the late 70s and early 80s, 
and getting the sense that I was queer or a dyke or a lesbo, any of the terms that were used as a weapon, um, was not something that I wanted to be. In that Catholic context too, it was sinful. And so add that on. And then also as a young kid, I was sexually abused by older boys and I already felt different and that's sinful. And then here I am liking girls, that's sinful. So I started drinking and drinking was a way to try to strike an impossible balance. One, to make me feel a little more at ease with myself and two, to make me fit in with other people. But I would drink right past that point. So suddenly I kind of had a, a trident of shame. My orientation, the abuse, and the fact that I knew I was becoming an alcoholic by the time I was 15 or 16. And I just, I was a blackout drinker regularly. And I wasn't drinking to numb. I know a lot of people talk about drinking to numb. I was drinking to annihilate. And, um, you know, I got through high school and I went to college where I would stop and start, stop and start. And I would tell myself, well, if I can stop, clearly I don't have a problem. And it was very convenient that I didn't look at the evidence. Oh, but then you'd start again. Right. And then, you know, I'd be off to the races. And, you know, I... I knew then that I had the problem. That's when I went to my first AA meeting, but I just, I couldn't do it. And then I had a horrible car accident right after I graduated from college and I was nearly killed. And I probably, you know, life is a matter of inches. It was a matter of inches for me. And I was banged up pretty bad and I was in the hospital and they were offering me all kinds of painkillers. And I thought, Betty Ford, here I come. And what that means was, uh, First Lady Betty Ford, who'd been married to Jerry Ford, was an alcoholic addict when she was the First Lady and then after her time in the White House. And one of the greatest things she did was start the Betty Ford Treatment Center out in California. And that's now part of Hazelden. And so I knew that I was an overachiever as a drinker. I knew that I was always looking to, as I said, not just numb, but to annihilate. And I thought, if I start taking these narcotic painkillers, I can imagine where I might go. And so I said no. And about a week or so later, I came to realize that I hadn't had a drink. And I decided to see how long I could go with that. And so I've been going with that experiment since 1987, August 1st, 1987. And for me, it's important to keep a proactive relationship with my addiction. It turns out I didn't keep too much of a proactive relationship to my recovery. That's part of the story here. So, you know, for me, I just decided that this alcoholic part of my identity was a fact of the matter. And I was just going to coordinate off and not pay any attention to it. And I wouldn't say that I was a dry drunk. And I wouldn't say that life was going really, really great. What I would say now is that probably I was experiencing the effects of a severe concussion. You know, I describe myself as being emotionally flatlined. And we didn't really talk about traumatic brain injuries back in the late 80s. I mean, you got your bell rung, you got a concussion, you get up and you move on. And now I understand that probably my desire to drink had to do with the fact that I was so emotionally deadened that I really didn't give a shit what happened to me. I kept remembering, or I remember people saying to me, oh, you're so lucky to be alive. I mean, that was a close call. And my thought always was, shut up. I'm not happy to be alive. 
I don't care that I'm alive. I wouldn't have cared if I had died. And it took me a long time, I think, to kind of come out of that and to begin to feel like I was truly living, you know, proactively. And I did. So, you know, I, I went on to graduate school and when Janine says I'm a doctor, I'm not a physician. I'm a philosopher. So I'll just put that out there. That's not even so a psychologist, cool. so a philosopher. You have a doctorate I, in philosophy? That's so cool. I, I, I do. I, I teach a lot of uh, the ethics classes, which is which is fantastic. Um, yeah, that's super cool. I, I love it. And, and I love talking about virtues and values and responsibilities. And so I was just going along in my life, not drinking, and everything was really, really good. I had a wonderful partner. How did you stop? Did you feel the urge to drink again? And that was something that you had to like deal with and deal with like, quote unquote, cravings, which I don't love that word, but you know what I mean? The impulse to drink again or the impulse. Yeah, I, I think I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think having the severe concussion that I did kind of knocked the cravings out of me. Okay. I didn't have any physical cravings. Okay. I mean, for me, my cravings were more psychological. And I think that that head injury was so much that I got enough time because of it where I really wasn't thinking about drinking right. or craving in that kind of sense. To me is so important because like, for example, the, just the other day I went to, uh, my stepdad had a birthday party right near this apartment that I lived in where I used a lot 10 years ago, mm -hmm. 10 years ago, like the, the worst I ever felt in my life. And I posted about it and somebody said, did you get triggered? And I, I didn't at all largely because it's been 10 years since I lived there, eight years in sobriety. And I think right. that that's like such a crucial time in recovery is the early days when you really want to use. And that's when obviously it's the strongest, but if you can get through that and get to that place, right? And obviously that's the battle, right? And get to the place where you've got some time. For me, a lot of it faded. And like you said, the brain injury got you to that point where it had been a long enough time, you know, which was fortunate. Yeah. I and I think that I think that's an important part of it. I mean, time is a huge part of it. And I think as we're in recovery, we become different people. Right. You know, yes, we still have our history, but we're we're in the world in different ways. And oftentimes we're in the world in different ways with different people. We change our friendship circles. We change sort of where we invest our time and interests that more of us devote time to recovery matters or to people in recovery. Right. So, you know there aren't the same kind of immediate, I, I describe cravings being like muggings, particularly in early sobriety. It's like your mug, your mug, you're walking along and then, oh, I used to drink all the time over there. or Oh, that's where I used to use. And you, you feel like you're just going to get jumped. They come out of the blue and they knock you flat on your ass. Yeah. I think the character of cravings change the longer you're in recovery. And we don't always recognize them as cravings. So, you know, what I mean by that, I was um, sober, not drinking for 20 years. And I had a good life. You know, I, I had a loving partner. We were a statistical anomaly. We were a same-sex academic couple at the same institution. There was one other couple in the United States who had that arrangement. Oh, wow. Virtually impossible to, to pull off. And I woke up one morning and I thought, this is a weird thought, so maybe this is revealing about me. I felt like I was a mouse running around the trim board of my own life. Like, 
what? But it was this clear thought where I came to realize that I didn't feel at home in my own life. I didn't recognize myself anymore. I was doing everything that I should be doing as a young academic, you know, teaching these classes, publishing, getting tenure, doing these reviews. I was doing everything and I was functioning, I would say, on a really high autopilot, but I lost myself. And an addiction is a way of losing yourself if you ever really had a self to lose to begin with. Because I think when we start really, really young, we don't have a more fully formed self. We're more, um, we're more impressions. You know, we, we don't come to have a strong self in the way we do. So, you know, at that point I was in my early forties right? and it was this same kind of feeling like, I don't know who I am anymore. What am I doing? I described it as being an existential concussion. I felt like I was in that same flat lined state that I was in right after I had the accident. And that made me sit up and pay attention to say, I need to be doing things differently in my recovery. I'm not being proactive about my recovery. And so I think the cravings change. They're more like um, nostalgia. Oh gosh, I remember when I could drink and it would be okay before I had the problem or I'm not the same person I was, you know, at this point, 35 years ago. I think it could be different or it's the, I can imagine I'm so sort of strong in who I am now that I can have everything that I have now and still get to drink. So, I mean, it isn't the same kind of mugging. It's more like I I say in a piece, it's a long con. So it's, it's, it's a scam that you start running on yourself because you start reinterpreting, you start imagining in different kinds of ways that everything great you have, will remain great. And then you get to drink too, or you get to use too. You're like, wait a minute. I love that. The long con where you, you, you start rationalizing ahead of time. I think that that's probably so true. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think people in long-term recovery are particularly vulnerable to it. Right. And the same way all these studies show that highly educated people who are accomplished and think they're really, really smart are susceptible to the biggest cons because they think they're too smart to be duped. They think they're too savvy. They think no one can get one over on them. And I think I was kind of thinking that way, like, oh God, you know, I got 20 years recovery under my belt. Look at me. I'm all that, you know, I'm the bomb, all that, and a bag of chips. (laughs) And I, I, I took my eye off the ball in a kind of way because I thought, well, I'm not going to relapse. I'm not going to be the kind of person who relapses. Like, Oh, hello. Yeah. That's exactly when you might, when you think that you are immune from them is exactly when you're the most vulnerable. So what did you decide to start doing at 20 years? Is this when you got back on the path to looking at the spiritual aspect of recovery and saying like, I wasn't drawn to that, but do I need to investigate that further? Is that kind of the path Mm -hmm. that you took? Yeah, that, that was a part of the path. So one thing was I met some people who did go to AA. Okay. And for me, I to them, I was like the, the polka dot unicorn. What? You sobered up without AA? What? You didn't go to treatment? What? And there was always this kind of, you know, suspicion like, we don't think you're really sober. Are you on a dry drunk? It's like, don't question my sobriety. You know, don't watch my bobber. Watch your own, Bobber. Don't be you know watching what? I'm, I'm guilty of that, too. I've got a friend who's got uh, just over me, eight years. 
never went to a meeting a day in her life her liver started to like hemorrhage and explode her body swelled up she was at a wedding it was this horrible er situation she has never drank or used again and she drank and used a lot and when i met her we both had like six months and she didn't do any meetings or anything and still hung out with all the same people and i remember thinking dude this girl's gonna use again she still hasn't you know like somehow it's worked for her you know she's but i think what she did is and this is a concept in your book that I want to talk about. You said something I've never heard before, which is that your higher power can also be an ideal like truth mm-hmm. or, and I think her higher power is gratitude. The ideal of gratitude yes. She was so fucking grateful for her life that it has lasted her eight years. And I love mm-hmm. that. Isn't that a cool idea that your higher power can be an ideal? Yeah. That's in her book. I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think so many people think that recovery is linear and it's like that. And that is like absolute insanity right. to me, you know, cause it, it's like, there's so many ways, like, who are we to think that this is the only path when there's so many ways to do things. And it's like, people seem, cause we, I think it's, I think it gets like, there's so much stuff that gets mixed up and like miscommunicated or translated because it's like, you know, we share from experience. So we think, you know, when we talk to somebody like, well, this is what worked for me. And look, when people see other people doing something different, like they, they question it, you know, cause it's right. never been their experience and they have no mm-hmm. experience with it, you know? And it's like, and that's like, they just get tunnel vision and that's all they see. But it's like, there's so many different things. Like there's so many people that never hit a room in their life. They just, some people find the gym. Some people, right. you know, mm-hmm. they, they get this idea. Some people, you know, some, some people think, think the ocean, a thought, you know, a process or something like that. Or right. some people just become complete, like they get into this like health thing, you know, or whatever. There's so many different ways to do this thing. And it doesn't, it's not, it's not even near linear. Right. It's, it's not linear. And, you know, for me, I think by any means necessary, whatever works for a person works for a person. And we need to be aware of the fact that each one of us is unique. We had our own reasons for using. Yes, there are many shared things in addictions within a particular kind of addiction and across other addictions, but addictions also differ from each other. And I think that's been one of the challenges, say with Alcoholics Anonymous having the 12 step model that really does recommend, I mean, they'll say all the steps are recommendations, not requirements, recommend abstinence. And so you start to see these skirmishes where real people are on the line about what counts as abstinence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thinking about medication assisted yeah. therapies. Yeah. Well, she said something and then I, I, I'm going to keep diverting you. I'm sorry. Cause I like, love you're not, it. no, you just go. You take we'll come back to you meeting the AA people and, and then it started you on a different journey, but I wanted, mm-hmm. uh, we talked about this off air. She said something so cool to me before you got here, which was, so like Matt recovery, right. like Suboxone. Yeah. And I mentioned, you know, the physical dependence. And she said, yeah, but there's an important distinction, which is physically dependent and addiction are two different things. Yeah. it's And tell, yeah. tell us what you, were, what you were saying to me about that off yeah. air. Physical, physical dependence doesn't equal substance use disorder. Right. Well, it's, I've never thought not, of that before. It's then. not the same. Yeah. It, it, it's, your, it's your relationship with the substance. It's your actions that happen. Are you putting yourself in harm or at risk because of substances? That is what makes it chaotic. Right. It's not the dependent. Mm-hmm. Would you agree to that? Well, I think so because, you know, a lot of us are physically dependent on all kinds of medications prescribed. So I'm asthmatic. So what I said to Janine was, you know, take away my inhalers and other meds for about four days. 
and I'll be as blue as a Smurf because I'm not going to be breathing well. And, and people who are on end-of-life care um, and hospice care will become physically dependent on morphine without being addicts. Because what we mean by addiction, I always say addiction is a way of life. And people are like, well, what do you mean by that? No, addiction no. is a way of living. It is how you approach the world and the ways in which you are willing to do certain things or not do other things how you want to have your drugs of choice available, how you want to use them, how you have to recover from them. That, that's a, it's a whole way of living. It isn't just an attitude, but it's our bodily engagements and actions in the world and as the world relates to us. And so that's really different from being physically dependent on something. So, you know, I don't remember if you probably had to draw Venn diagrams when you were in school where things overlap. Of course, there's some overlap between physical dependency and addiction, but they are not synonymous. Totally. You know, because I, I think it's, it's clear to say not all physical dependencies are addictions, so the medication ones. And I think it's really up in the air whether all addictions involve physical dependency right. or can it be just psychological dependency. So here you've got all these differences between and among the same addictions and between different addictions. And to try to say, here's this one model that works, it makes it be really hard. I think it sets up failure for a lot of people yeah. because you know, when you read how it works, it does make it seem as if, if it doesn't work for me, it's because I'm not doing the program right mm -hmm. or I'm somehow being dishonest. And and that's not a helpful kind of, of message. And, and me, I always, I, I worry about counting in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I know the day I had my last drink. It matters to me. My life could have gone in different ways. It matters to me. But I worry about the ways in which having a number, having a date becomes an albatross around a person's neck. We just had our our episode like four episodes yeah. ago was me and him debating yeah. having a sobriety date that you take time for. Yeah. And I think that that's true what you just yeah. said. So and, and you said one other thing earlier, too, that I want to include, which was this. So say somebody is on Suboxone. Pharmacologically, there will be some results if you stop taking it. That doesn't mean the person isn't living a recovered life while on it. And I think absolutely. So Ab and that is crucial. It's crucial to make that discernment. You know, it's crucial to make that discernment. Like I was telling her, oh, I had that woman, Ashley, who was, you know, this woman was a sex worker for 20 years, a, a street walking. You know, she was in a lot of danger all of the time. Sex yep. worker for 20 years, lost four children on Suboxone for four years, has gotten all four of her children back and has two million followers on TikToks because she promotes a life of like healing and recovery from you know the dangers of sex work if that's what you're looking for to get out of that that industry yes or the dangers of active addiction on the street sharing needles like i'm sorry i have a hard time believing that that's not a recovered life and the way that you just said it is so true like somebody could be on insulin they're physically dependent to insulin they're not an addict and you could be physically dependent on suboxone but living a recovered life and, and I think that's exactly what Nate was saying. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's sort of what role does this play in your life? Yeah. Yes. Right. Is it chaotic? Which is, is it, is it chaos creating? Yeah. Is it harm creating? Is it, 
actions that on some accounting you really don't want to be doing that you'll have massive regret for or recrimination? Do you make your life, you know, this big cycle of drama? Yeah. And so you offend and then you've got to repent and repair, but it's lather, rinse, repeat, right? I mean, if, if you're caught in those patterns, that's really different. In your book too, you don't recognize yourself. And, and when I read that, I thought that's such a hallmark of some of the deeper places of addiction is not, I didn't recognize myself. And that's a very disconcerting feeling, you know, that, that, that in and of itself is an emotional quote unquote, like bottom, right? Is not recognizing ourself. Another piece I'd say too in that, talking to a lot of people, and this wasn't my experience, but I've heard of it enough, that when you look in the mirror, the mirror, say if you are a, a child of an alcoholic or a drug addict, you look in the mirror and you see that parent looking back at you. So you do recognize yourself. So different torments, not recognizing yourself at all. Interesting. And recognizing yourself as something you never wanted to become or um, becoming yeah. like someone you never wanted to be okay. like. That's a special kind of torment too. Yeah, oh, that totally makes sense. So you met the people in AA. Oh, I met the <laughs> Getting us back on track here. Go ahead, Janine. <laughs> I'll try because I'm okay. with, like interruptions and diversions. And then when I go back and listen to my podcast, I was like, oh, they were saying something really cool. Fuck it. Okay. So, so I want to try not to do that anymore. <laughs> you're, you're, Tank, Tank gets his personality from you. Just... Tank does not get his personality from <laughs> yeah, does. What was that? 12% demonic possession? Yeah, exactly. is that what it was? My husband says 88% love, 12% demon. Maybe me and Tank are the same. Okay, so tank, tank, tank is your familiar or your totem animal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's my spirit animal. That's um, right. Okay, so met the people from AA. You had twenty years sober, not doing AA. You met them and started thinking maybe it's not so bad. I started thinking, oh look, I still have the same uneasiness about it. Okay. Uh, I mean, I still <laughs> some things don't change. Okay. Um, I still had the same uneasiness about all the God language. Okay. And I couldn't get behind. God has a plan for me. Everything happens for a reason. You know, and those are such common refrains. And I find myself getting, I don't know, a little combative and thinking, I don't think everything happens for a reason. But what I want to know is that I will be okay with whatever happens, even though what that okayness might look like, I might not recognize it right now. And I, I'm, I'm someone who's not going to turn my life and my will over the care of God as I understood him. It isn't going to happen. So what I did decide to do was use my training in philosophy to look at addiction and recovery as ways that people make meaning and value. And so I wanted to start asking about, um, say, moral character. So, you know, in AA, one of the steps is to make a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. And a lot of us took that as uh, a requirement to just list every bad thing about ourselves. And so for me, I think, well, a full and searching, fearless moral inventory has to include the positive and the negative. It's got to include the virtues, the good qualities, the strengths, and the bad things. And, you know, defect is a word that I think gets really, really loaded. And I also realized that addicts are some of the most philosophical people I have ever met, including among other pointy headed PhDs at, you know, academic conferences where I don't understand the title of half the papers. So I feel like fraud alert, aisle 12, fraud alert in, you know, the Regency banquet room. And 
you know, to, to ask, am I the same person now in recovery as I was when I was using, as when I was using? That's a deeply philosophical question. Yeah. And a philosophical question to ask, how do we transform really awful, terrible experiences into ones where we find strength and meaning and perhaps find our purpose? Those are deeply philosophical questions. So I started kind of swimming around more in the world of addiction and recovery and treatments. And sort of what got me to this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, was knowing a little bit about the history of AA and knowing where the term higher power came from. It came from a particular American philosopher, William James, who lived between 1842 and 1910. And to think that, I think AA got it wrong. Bill Wilson got it wrong what that term means. And I want to return it to its original meaning because I think it's far more inclusive and inviting to people like me who don't subscribe to a belief in a providential kind of God. And so that's what I set out to find in this book is what are other higher and friendly powers that William James talked about? And to say, it's too bad Bill Wilson didn't keep that original, more expansive sense because I think a lot of us might have found a home in AA or NAOA much earlier than we did. Wow, yeah. So talk about William James and his relationship to what is his role with AA? Because I had never heard of him. So William James wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It was actually a series of lectures that he gave in 1902. So that's, boom, deep background. The story of Bill Wilson getting sober is kind of the, the founding story. It's the mythology of AA. So the story goes something like this. Bill Wilson checked into the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York City in December of 1934 after numerous attempts of trying to quit and failing. And he had been in and out of uh, the terminology of the day was asylums for the inebriate or hospitals for the inebriate. And he had failed miserably. So there he is one more time. And in many ways, Bill Wilson is something of a loser, we might say. He was an unsuccessful businessman who pretty much lost whatever money he had, and he was living with his wife's parents. So, you know, he, yeah. he, he was not flourishing or thriving, yeah. or he hadn't fully launched, as we say now. And um, he's trying to get sober one more time, and he throws up his hands defiantly in this hospital saying, you know, I'll do anything, anything. If there's a God, show yourself now. I'll do anything. And he writes about feeling this spirit of wind that comes through and removes his desire to drink. And so he's got this huge relief that's quickly followed by, a, oh, shit, am I losing my mind? Um, could he have been hallucinating by going through alcohol withdrawal, which was a distinct possibility? And they used belladonna to treat alcoholism and alcohol withdrawal, which can also cause hallucination. So he, he was... It was legitimate for her to worry whether he had hallucinated this whole thing. But a friend visited him and brought him William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. And James said reading that book had the effect on him that he understood what happened to him as a conversion. Okay. And so Varieties is a set of lectures that's all about exploring people. James says, 
whose spiritual impulses burn as an acute fever in them. That spiritual impulses animate or are their habitual center of personal energy. So there's a new wavy expression from you or for you in 1902, habitual center of personal energy. And James argues that spiritual impulses are as much a part of human nature as any part of our biology, any part of our physiology, any part of our, our mental capacities, but they get treated pretty poorly by academics and scientists in particular. It's kind of woo-woo stuff or you know stuff that can't be proven. And James is fascinated by people who burn with that acute fever. And his definition of spiritual is not at all attached to any kind of religious or faith-based doctrine. He says, I have no interest in theological questions or proofs for God's existence. I don't have any interest in proving that Judaism is right, and Christianity is wrong, or Hinduism is right, and Jainism is wrong. He says, I have no interest in that. I want to look at the intense experiences of individuals. And so this book, Varieties, is this incredible chronicling of all these different stories of people who have undergone significant changes so that they become reborn, regenerated, rejuvenated. And at least five of the cases in there that James keeps coming back to were people like Bill W., people who couldn't stop drinking or couldn't stop smoking or couldn't stop having, you know, lots of bad sex all the time. Um, <laughs> The, the expression was carnal mirth. I saw that and so, <laughs> so there's Bill Wilson reading this book that he's got to probably feel was all about people like him. Right. And William James talks about, you know, conversions. He said, James, it feels like it's caused by an external source because it's so big and so massive. Like here was Bill Wilson saying, I don't want to drink anymore. Or here's someone saying, I now believe in God. It makes it tempting to think that an external force like a God is doing something to you. And James says, we're not licensed to, to claim that. The most we can say is that conversions are psychological processes. Okay. Every person can author their own incredible change. But you need to have something higher or friendly that you can use to begin to change yourself. So as higher powers... He said, anything will do so long as it's large enough to help you take the next step. So it could be ideals about beauty or truth. So I'm going back to, you know, Janine, you had talked about your friend about gratitude. Gratitude is expansive. It creates or it, it generates itself. The more gratitude you feel, the more you're capable of feeling, the more capable you're feeling, the more you spread it. I mean, all of that. And so... William James, in talking about higher friendly powers, ideals such as truth or beauty, moral principles, a sense of human decency, a sense that there's just something more to the world than just you, a better version of yourself. Wow. All of these can be higher powers that enable you to do something. So each of us authors our own conversions and our own changes we don't have to wait for a providential God to do something to us because we don't know whether such a God exists. So that's a very different kind of higher and friendly powers in William James from what appears in Alcoholics Anonymous in the 12 steps. That's so cool. I love that idea that we're the authors 
We are the authors of what is large enough. And it just needs to be big enough to allow us to take the next step. That's, that's it. Full stop. Beautiful way of looking at that. So, and you feel like in the steps, the way he said, God, a God of our understanding, you don't really think that goes far enough though to convey. Well, obviously it doesn't because everybody thinks it's faith-based, right? So obviously it doesn't. Because to me, right. when I read that, I, I, I feel that that's expansive enough, but I also have no religious trauma, right? Like I was raised in a very safe space. We did go to church, but my parents, no, you know, there was no limiting punitive God. It was very like accepting. They were, you know, they were very socially progressive. And so for me, religion and God encompassed a very open, loving way of life that wasn't punitive right. for me. And so unknowingly, my parents set me up for AA later. When I well, became- I mean, that, that, that program would work perfectly for you. So I, I kind of explain it to people like it's the default setting on, say, Microsoft Word. If you like everything about the default setting, oh, I love this font, I love this spacing, you can just get on and go. Right. I hate the default settings in words. I can't Fair. stand the font. I can't stand the spacing. So right. I'm always having to adjust and change. Okay. So it puts an added burden, I think, on people who are new yeah. to the program. Totally. They've got to do a kind of, I describe it as um, spiritual Taekwondo, like yeah. locking these notions of God and coming up with something that works. That's a lot to ask a person new in recovery to do. Totally. Yeah. Someone that five days off of heroin to also do all that is, you know, that's, that's, and I'm, that's like you said, that's a burden. So do you suggest to someone who is listening to the show and is struggling with that concept? How does one begin the journey of authoring their own higher power? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it might depend upon what kind of group they're in with AA or NA. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about AA. While there is a, a general service office or a world office, AA and NA don't operate, operate like franchises of Subway or McDonald's where everything is identical. So if you're in a large urban area, you could go to an AA where they strike the God language and just have inserted higher power. Or you may go to an AA meeting that is very old school, traditional. This is always how we've done it. We always read how it works. We always end with the um, the, the Lord's Prayer. prayer. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. So I think people who have longer term recovery, who are in these different meetings, I think need to be more welcoming by showing themselves to be allies to the non-God ways of talking about higher power. I, I often describe people early in recovery and sometimes even later in recovery as being like hitchhikers. We ride on each other's sobriety and knowledge. And, and I think some of us just need to pay more attention to that. Yeah. So, you know, I know anytime I am in an AA meeting and there are new people, you get the sense when someone is struggling with the God language. It yeah. becomes apparent pretty quickly. And so, I mean, I think that's that's one part of it. But the other part of, you know, how does each person come to begin to discover a higher power within themselves so that they can author their own recovery? I think we learn from each other. I think there's a reason why a lot of people say, well, the group is my higher power for now, until they can figure out what it is that works for them. So that part of the takeaway message is that 
a higher power works for you. And if it isn't working for you, then it isn't a higher power. And so, you know, a, a higher power can be a belief in myself that maybe I can go, never mind 24 hours, maybe I can go 24 minutes. And one of the wonderful things that, that William James says is that faith is really pretty run-of-the-mill, common and ordinary. Faith is just a willingness to believe in maybes and impossibilities where the results aren't guaranteed in advance. And then he goes on to say, faith can make fact. So my faith that I might be able to go for 24 minutes helps to make the fact that I can go 24 minutes. And then that new fact shores up my faith. And so it is very much of this kind of interactive, I'm gonna go back to what Nate said, that it's not a linear progression at all, that oftentimes it is a kind of going back or spiraling and then moving, spiraling and moving. Right. And I think that's, that's the good news. But again, though, that's what makes me worry about all the counting because counting is linear. There's nothing more linear yeah. than the set of numbers. Yeah. And so if you think, you know, that I've, I've got to move here first, I've, I've, I've got to, you know, make this kind of commitment to a higher power. Well, if I can't make that commitment, does that mean my sobriety can never get off the ground? No, because I think that's where, again, we borrow, we hitchhike, we kind of cobble something together until maybe we begin to know ourselves a little bit more to identify what might serve as a higher power. So people come into the rooms in all different kinds of ways. Some people come in and they just want to put someone else in charge because they feel like I've had to be in charge of everything and things have not gone well. And they will you know, totally give themselves over to the program and do everything that people tell them to do and read the steps as very strong requirements, not as recommendations. And other people come into the program, maybe already having a sense of, you know, what you said, religious trauma. It's like, that's not going to work for me. Right. What can I do in the meantime? And what resources do I have within myself? And I think, you know, early in recovery, we oftentimes really lack clarity. We don't know what will work. So sometimes we would just might throw everything at a problem and hope that maybe one thing does work and then learn from there. I love that you said that. And I try to do what you just said. That's why I try to say on the program as often as I can that 12 step does not, because I like you, I really believe in the deep dive of the 12 steps as a philosophical endeavor that can bring us to our, like a better version of ourselves, right? And the yeah. social aspects of it. I think that there is so much benefit in the 12 steps and it gets so hung up on on that on that word on just the god word and so i try to as often as i can on this show this is why i was so excited to have you is for new people to say look if this is what's in your town man you can still go there trust me it doesn't have to be god it can be what peg is saying and the other things are still good to try and do and i also have suggested before move to a different group like what you yes. just said you know the wednesday noon AA at the VFW or the Alano Club, they're probably going to end with the Lord's Prayer, right? They probably are. But if you find like a weekend NA night meeting, right, they might not, you know, yep. they might not. And so if you just, if you find different groups, you'll refine, you'll find a recovery group within the 12 step um, paradigm 
that is more aligned with something that you feel comfortable with. And, and, and my fear is that people go to that one meeting, the Wednesday noon Alano, and they think, oh, this is AA, I'm done. And I also get so frustrated, but you know, it can't be helped when people do end a meeting with the Lord's prayer. That was not ever, that's not written anywhere in the big book, right? That's just like a person. That's just practice. That's just practice. So, I mean, I think that's one of the fundamental tensions in AA. So it's a program of recovery. So here are these 12 steps, these 12 ideas, but it's also the group. And sometimes there's some friction between those two, between the program and then members of the group. I mean, there's a reason why you see people leave one group and form another group that, you know, is, is important to pay attention to. And again, I just keep coming back to how hard it is for a person newly in recovery to not know all of that or have to deal with all of that. Um, So it's interesting, a little bit more of the history of AA. So it's pretty clear that Bill Wilson, almost entirely on his own, came up with the 12 steps and wrote the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. Pretty clear. There's a, a... a big comprehensive um, investigation in this book called Writing the Big Book. It, it's very complete. And in some ways, the founding of AA is a mythology. It's not quite clear that Bill Wilson had that experience, but Bill Wilson was a salesman. And he knew that every, every movement, every successful business requires a good story behind it. So it isn't exactly clear that story sells everything. That's true. Story Story sells everything. Story like this, like we could all do the same exact thing, but the the better story is going to sell and be and be more prominent. A marketing yes, and Bill Wilson knew that. He knew that. So when he had a draft of what goes on to become Alcoholics Anonymous, um, so have you both read the big book? Have you read? Yeah, the, the the chapter about the businessman. Is that in one of the stories at the end? Mm. It's one of the original stories. If you read it now, and if you're in human resources, you'd be like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. But that person, Hank Parkhurst, has dropped out of AA history, but he's very important. So Hank Parkhurst was one of the early people of AA and was close with Bill Wilson. Dr. Bob was off in Ohio. He's, he's kind of um, a third wheel. Okay. That so he's kind of off to the side. And Hank Parkhurst is the businessman, and he's the one who convinced Bill Wilson. This is one of the smartest things that he could have done. He told Bill Wilson, You hold on to the copyright, the publishing rights, and you self publish this book. Wow. If they had sold the rights to that, I don't think we'd have AA as a movement because there wouldn't have been any money behind it. Okay. So there's that. But Hank Parkhurst said to Bill Wilson, All this God language is going to drive people away. You got to tone down on this God language. And so the concession Bill Wilson made was God as we understood him. Okay. That that was the way to try to be more inclusive. And Hank Parkhurst ultimately went out and relapsed and never came back in. So he kind of gets erased from the AA history. But that was one of the most important things that Parkhurst did for us was to say this God language is going to alienate. It's going to keep people away. And that compromise for many isn't sufficient because it's still a male providential God. And so, you know, many women, for example, 
the reason why Women for Sobriety, an alternative movement to AA was founded, was many women said, we don't need to hear about powerlessness because we've lived it. And we don't need to be under the dominion of a male God because we've been under the dominion of men anyway. So, you know, there's always been a slight undercurrent about the religious tones that, you know, becomes a riptide when you've got meetings that end with the Lord's Prayer. Right, totally. So did you end up doing the 12 steps yourself? Did you walk through them and do you go to meetings? Did, did you find your own compromise there? <laughs> so I, I have never officially done the 12 steps. Okay. I, you know, I certainly know what they are. I certainly think about them. Yeah. And, and, and I think that doing the work I do in moral philosophy makes me think about how am I in the world? How am I showing up? What responsibilities do I have? Am I meeting? Am I being the kind of person I want to be? that I was able to do a lot of that work without the program because of my, my professional and personal interests. Um, and I go to meetings, I say, because I really like some of the people. Yeah. And I will always speak at an AA meeting if I'm ever invited to do so, because I just find it so incredibly powerful to be with groups of people yeah. um, who, who are working towards the same goals as I am and who really get a sense of the responsibilities we have to each other. I mean, AA is one of the few places where so many of the divisions that keep people separated, oftentimes in hierarchical relationships, get flattened out or don't matter. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter that you're the, you know, corporate CEO and you, you know, make a thousand times of what this person over here makes working part-time or this person who's trying to go to school or or that person. And so that's one of the great I think gifts of AA is, yeah. is democratizing in that kind of way where there are no paid experts sitting in those rooms that if there's a physician or a psychologist or a social worker there, they're there because they're one of us. Mm -hmm. They're not there because they are going to help us get better or fix us. And that kind of democracy is something that Bill Wilson got absolutely right from William James. And the other thing that Bill Wilson got absolutely right from William James were the nine-step promises. Okay. Why you know, do you really that? got it right about what life looks like after one's uh, drug or alcohol use aren't burning at the, sep the um, center of your gravity. So here's how, if I could read something that yeah, William absolutely. James wrote about what it's like to, he says, reap the fruits of the spiritual tree. So to become someone whose spirituality is burning within them and it's, generative it's creating more it's creating depth and complexity and it's spreading so he says about people whose lives are transformed in this kind of way james writes that whole raft of cowardly obstructions which in tame persons in dull moods are sovereign impediments to action sink away at once our conventionality our shyness laziness and stinginess our demands for precedent and permission, for guarantee and surety, our small suspicions, our timidities, despairs, where are they now? Severed like cobwebs, broken like bubbles in the sky. So you can you can hear the resonance the there with, yeah. with the nine-step promises. Totally, yeah. Loss of timidity, you know, fears of financial insecurity. Yeah, totally. All of those things they disappear. But I just, I just love severed like cobwebs and broken like bubbles in the sky. They just, they dissipate. 
they're gone. But they're gone only because someone has been doing all the work. They don't magically disappear. It's all the work that a person does on him, her, or themselves that make them be different people, people who can give up this whole raft of cowardly obstructions and all these kinds of timidities and anxieties and fears and concerns and put them down and gain a kind of, you know, a stability in an equilibrium where chaos is not the, the name of your life anymore. It's not the rhythm of your life, but you've got some stability. You've got some equilibrium. You've got some peace. You've got some serenity. So serenity is another word that pops up a lot in James's varieties. So Bill Wilson got a lot right. Yeah. And I wish he had gotten it right about that higher power. So do you still recommend if you meet someone who's newly in recovery or wanting to get sober, do you still recommend 12 step and finding a meeting and starting down that road? I do. I, because for many people, it's the only option available. So, you know, if you live in a rural area, if you're in a treatment desert, AA is your option. NA is your only option. So given that, I think it is an important resource. And I oftentimes will say to people, you know, if I know them, if I know something, you know, about them to say, it may be a little bit of a rough go here for a while, but, but give it a chance, give the people a chance. And most importantly, give yourself a chance. So I am not anti-AA at all. If I had my way, there would be as many ways out of addiction as there are into it. So whether it's Life Ring, Smart Recovery, Women for Sobriety, counseling, medication-assisted therapies, we need so many more options for treating addiction. And AA is, is a big option. The 12-step is a big option. I mean, it's the dominant model in most treatment centers, both in and out patients, something like three quarters. Right. So you get a lot of people going to treatment, whether they're being uh, sent there by a judge or whether their family is desperate for them. We need the 12 steps to work for as many people as it can. So I see myself as trying to help people make the 12 steps work for them. That's how I feel too. I think the 12 steps are vital. Like I said, in doing that deep dive that can really mm -hmm. cause that shift. Yep. And so I also am like passionate about opening up the stereotypes around 12 step and saying, it's not just this Lord's prayer, Catholic version. You know what I mean? Like it's not, that's not what it's supposed to be. And if you just mm -hmm. go and try to set some of that stuff aside and find a sponsor that resonates with you or mentor that resonates with you and that you can respect and go to, and embark on this journey of the 12 steps, I think that it's likely you'll come out on the other end. Like you said, with that shifted habitual center of spirituality, is that what you said? What is it? The habitual, habitual center of energy. Habitual center of personal energy. Of personal energy, right. Like, and that was chaos and addiction and the drug itself. And then, you know, we can shift that habitual center of personal energy. And that's like the spiritual change, you know, that's- mm -hmm. That's exactly what, you get it. You get an A plus. Yay! I'm, I'm saying that. You said it better than I did. So you are at the head of the class, Janine. Yay! Like, yeah. Well, um, and I love his other term was hot spot of consciousness. Okay. I the like hot that. spot of your consciousness. It's like, yeah. Sort of what do you pay the most attention to? What motivates most of your actions or your interests? Or what takes away other kinds of motivations? You know, what just kind of is the axis around which 
other dimensions of your life turn. I also think that because I'm trying to think of ways that that you could discover that higher power that works for you, whatever is getting you to, you know, regenerate, move forward. I think that journaling would be a great way into that path, mm -hmm. right? Like, in addition to journaling, what would you recommend as tools to get started finding what works for you, that truth ideal or the higher power that works for you? Journaling just came to mind. Do you have other examples that you would suggest? I think the willingness to, to sit in silence. Okay. I think we have so many distractions. We can listen to things all the time. We can watch things all the time that I think many people are, are terrified to just sitting quietly and see what comes to their mind or what their thoughts are. I mean, I think people are so alienated from their, what's the way to put it, internal life. You know, that they, they, are, they are strangers. I think many of us, here's another way I, I put what addiction is. Addiction is when you become a stranger to yourself, particularly if you had hopes and dreams or you were a certain way. Yeah. And now you don't recognize yourself like we talked about earlier. And so, you know, to sit in silence and not feel like you always have to be busy, not always having to be watched or not always having to entertain, to give yourself permission to do that. What a gift. What's coming up for you right now? Oh, I, I hope the mic, because I'm like leaning back right now. Uh, I, uh, so no, when you said that, cause it's like, I'm always moving. Like when I sit still, I just, I, maybe it's part of it's like, you know, the way I was raised and, you know, you can bring that in there, but it is so hard for me to sit still and like in, while we're doing this in my head right now, I'm thinking of the fucking thousands of fucking things that I have to do because I got yep. out of detox and all this shit and my mind is just fucking spinning right now. I mean, like it's on a sick one. It's like my mind rolled the pookie itself. You know what I mean? And uh, it's on the fast spin cycle. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm just like over here, like holy shit. But it's but it's like it's re it's really hard for me to sit still. Like when I sit still, my head tells me I'm a piece of shit. Yeah, and it's it is so hard. And like my mind never like. I mean, I have intermittent, intermittent like moments of like peace, but my mind is just constantly spinning and spinning and spinning like it just never stops. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way. I mean, it's just been that way ever since I, like when I was a kid. Yeah, and and I'm aware of my you know seeing if you can't just sit still and and have your thoughts come to you as they come to you and and not judge them. But that's the thing: we can have all these thoughts going through our head. But the one thing that always, you know, stays steady is that judge. Well, that's a stupid thought. Why would anyone think that? Or I can't believe you're thinking about that. Or pay attention. I mean, all these sorts of things. And, you know, I, I, I also want to be aware of the fact, you know, that my saying sit still, you know, I don't want that, you know, for people who do have ADHD, for example, diagnosed or not, that, you know, that is a real kind of challenge. And, and I, and I don't want to at all gloss over that. But I also think too, to begin to look at other people, and I know they say in Alcoholics Anonymous in particular, and they probably too, look at people who have something that you want. You know, look for people who are in the world in a way that you admire, mm -hmm. or look at people who, and I think this is why the, the mutual help part of AA and our telling our stories is so important. 
because we come to have self-knowledge when we can see ourselves in others' stories. Oh, I used to be like that. And we come to know ourselves when we hear people say things about us. You're like, oh, Janine, you have come so far. I remember when, or, oh, you've been, been so helpful to all these people that I think for a lot of us who are addicts, it's very hard for us to admit that other people can see us accurately and that we can't always see ourselves accurately because I know when I look at myself, look at myself either in a mirror, literal, or when I'm kind of looking at myself thinking, la, 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 there's always funhouse mirrors there. They're always distorted. And sometimes it takes someone else to hold up a mirror for us so that we begin to get a glimpse of something. We have to be patient with ourselves. And I think that's a really hard thing too, is to be patient because I know for me in early sobriety, once you know, I started thinking about it, I wanted everything to be okay right away. I wanted to mend relationships right away. I wanted to you know, be doing things right away. And impatience is a cause of a lot of ruin or a lot of mishap. Yeah. But we also live in a, a culture that doesn't reward patience. And so how to be patient with ourselves. Yeah. So that actually kind of brings me to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which was, and I know you wrote about this a little bit in your book, are some people more susceptible to addiction? Yeah, I, I think they are. So on the one hand, I think addiction is an equal opportunity condition because no one is immune to it. Right. And I, th- I think some people have some more protective factors. Um from developing a full-blown addiction. So if you're in a supportive family where they start to see, given that everything now is on a continuum of a substance use disorder from mild, moderate to severe, that if someone is sort of well-nestled in supportive relationships, that they're more likely to get help sooner rather than later to nip a problem, to be able to walk a mild, substance use disorder back to a moderate or to a moderate or a mild to to having none. So I think there are some protective features that some have, but I think definitely some people are more susceptible to developing addictions. I mean, there seems to be a pretty clear correlation between people developing addictions to people who have faced a lot of adversity, um, particularly in childhood. There's also a direct correlation between the age at which someone starts using or drinking and going on to develop a more full-blown addiction. So I think people who are marginalized or disempowered, who are in some ways um, members of groups that are regarded as less than, are more susceptible, in part because they have more hostility and competing demands coming at them than other people do. But I think, you know, one of the, I think adversity and adversity has a variety of forms. It can be economic adversity. It can be physical adversity. It can be uh, mental or emotional adversity that the younger someone starts using, the more adversities they have, the far greater risk there is to developing an addiction. That just reminded me though of, of another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is, because the idea of adversity, to me, I think also breeds, can lend itself to resilience and strength. And I've heard you say 
many times that you are very grateful, not just for recovery, but for your actual addiction and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel. I'm not just grateful for recovery, which, which has brought me a lot, right? Like these, you know, uh, spiritual ventures and, you know, the social aspects of recovery. I'm grateful for a lot of that, but I'm also actually really grateful for the depths of my addiction. And I've heard you say that on other podcasts. Mm -hmm. Will you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I, I am grateful for having had it. I mean, it was an unwanted opportunity. I think some of our greatest growth experiences come from opportunities that are unwanted. But I don't think that I would have the compassion and depth of character and concern for others if I hadn't had this incredible struggle, if I hadn't had these things happen to me. I mean, did I want to be abused by older boys? No. Did, did I want to feel buckets of shame? No. But I had them and I need to make peace with them. And I'm grateful because they have given me, you know, not just my strength. I hate, they always say, you know, what's the worst question to ask in a job interview? It's like, oh, what's your greatest strength or your greatest weakness? And when someone says, oh, they're the same, that answer kind of drives me crazy. Um, but it meant that I had to figure out how to be in the world that was sustainable in a way that I could live with. And I had to make a choice to continue living. So after I had that car accident, when I was so flatlined, when I lost all motivation about everything, I had to decide that, no, I'm going to go on. And I didn't know what going on would look like. And I think one of the greatest takeaways from me, and I don't remember if I said this during our recorded time here or earlier, uh, maybe I didn't say it, was one of the greatest gifts I have is knowing that I will be okay. I won't always stick the landing. I won't always land on my feet. I might fall flat on my ass, but I know that I will somehow get up and I'll be okay. And what that okay looks like could be entirely unrecognizable to me, but I know that I will be okay. And that my being okay isn't because of anything great, grand or glorious about me and being especially resilient or anything. I, I think not. I think it has to do with the fact that I know how to rely upon others and ask for help. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that I have having developed an addiction and having worked my way in and through recovery. I love that. That's an aspect of it that I think I never thought of, that it also gives us the, like you said, the unwanted opportunity sometimes to ask for help, but then now moving forward, we know how to do that and we have resources, you know? And we recognize when others need help. I, th I think yeah. being being an alcoholic makes me a more attuned teacher to my students and their suffering. You know, I'm going to pick up on things because I see myself in them and I, and I hope they, they can see myself, they can see themselves in me and that those connections, because I think one of the things about addiction is it's so isolating, Yeah, you know, that we draw more and more down into ourselves until we're pretty crunched down and that, when we make a connection, I mean, that's that expansiveness, that's that opening, it's that kind of opportunity. And, you know, I feel that I am so blessed to do what I do, that I really have an obligation, not as a burden, but my obligation in some ways feels like a gift that I get to do this. Yeah. 
you know, my having to do this is a gift. I get to do this. And I would imagine you would feel the same way with this podcast. This must be part of the reason why you both do this podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, at some point in, so I owned a fitness studio too until recently. And when all the COVID stuff happened and I share pretty openly about my story, but out of nowhere, when everything that happened with 2020 and COVID and the pandemic and all that, I thought if something happened to me tomorrow, I've not fulfilled my obligation in terms of letting people know that you do not have to die a dope fiend. You don't. I have not said that enough in this world. I haven't. Like, I need Mm -hmm. to do this. I need to do this now. I just felt this compelling urge. But like you said, it doesn't feel like an obligation in in a negative connotation. It feels like a gift also, you know? And Yeah, and it's it's not proselytizing or trying to convert or convince people right now none of us can change the habitual center of personal energy of another but we can we can be there to help we can be there because we never know if you know someone looks at you janine someone looks at you nate and they see something that you have that they want you never know when you may be playing that role for another person and what what a what a wonderful way of thinking about how to be in the world. Yeah. You know, that's why I love the responsibility statement for AA. You know, I'm responsible. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA to be there. And for that, I am responsible. I love ending a prayer with that, with all of us looking at each other, just to remind each other, like, we're all here right now. And there are others who aren't here. And, you know, we're just going to, do what we do and maybe they will come and join us. And if they come and join us, then we continue to do what we do. What an honor that we get to do this. It's such an honor. And through that too, it also helped me relieve some, relieve some of the shame and embarrassment around my past. The honor of being able to share and help others was the primary way that I came into a space where I was grateful where I have been able to not wish to close the door on the past, right? Like it says in in, in the promises, that's directly how I got there, the sharing with others. And yep. so it's like that, you know, it's, it's sick. It gives back to it. You know, it's like the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh-huh. Not recidivism because that's like when you get out of jail. That's going backwards. Yeah. Right. Reciprocal. I, I just always reciprocal. say it's generative. There's a reciprocal, reciprocal. Yeah, there's yep. a reciprocal relationship between helping somebody else and helping me and helping somebody else and yep. helping me, you know? And that's what, that's what I think Bill Wilson got absolutely right. Right. From varieties that William James really saw himself as helping others to explore their spiritual impulses and, discover each of us, you know, for our own self, what that might be. I mean, he was always so careful never to say what his own beliefs were. He was always right. so careful never to have his thumb on the scale in doing that. And, and, and I think that's, that's absolutely right. Scott, this is a good conversation that I think should, should continue at some point because there's like decades of that thought process of this being linear. And like every time I speak, I always try to make sure it's inclusive that that individuals that are new or may not know that my experience, their their results or their experiences is not conducive to what I've experienced. They can have the experience that they want if they if they seek it. Mm-hmm. You know yes, you, you know what I mean. And I try to make sure people know that and to be inclusive. And then and then it's like this may not be for you either. You know what I mean? Like you may have to get it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I mean? And and I don't know, I, I, I always just try to put a huge emphasis on being 
inclusive to people because I don't yep. know what they've been through, their life experiences, yep. and, so, and they don't need to think that they can't get that because they're not here or there. You know, you don't have to be anywhere. You just have to be, you just have to seek it and you'll find it. Right. I mean, the one thing to say is you've got to be willing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're that, willing, it, you'll find you've it. just got to be willing. And so it may be AA, it may be NA, it may be women for sobriety. It, it may be something, it may yeah. be a church. I mean, it may be all these things. And say that we have a responsibility to put our pride and ego to the side and say, hey, if this isn't working for you, yeah. what about this over here? This might help you. You know what I mean? Who am I yeah. to like try to hold you hostage here? And I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying that I know anybody that does that, but I'm saying some people get kind of prideful about how they recover and all this stuff. And it's like, push them on. Like, you yeah. know, you're, you're being a disservice if you do that. You know? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And the other piece I'd add to that, to being inclusive, is just a reminder that our needs change in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that that's, worked for your first year, yeah, doesn't work for your 10th year because you're a different person. You're a different place yeah. in your life. And so that's the whole thing about, you know, being nimble. I mean, that was my wake up call when I felt like, wait a minute, I don't recognize my own life here. Ooh, I well, felt our that before. Changing. Our brain is always yep. changing. Neural pathways are constantly changing. Always. Yeah. That was something I wanted to ask you about, that needs and recovery change over mm -hmm. time. And I think that that's important to be aware of. Even mm -hmm. for me, even when I just simply read you saying, it, even in this list, I thought, yeah, because I've got eight years and it looks different for me now than it did in the beginning. I don't have three commitments a week anymore. But, and sometimes I feel like, am I going to relapse? <laughs> you know, but like my life has changed. And so my needs and recovery change, you know, and yes. obviously what I'm doing is working and, you know, here I am, I'm so clean and sober, you know? And so it was almost like relieving for me to hear that, that our needs and recovery over time can change and they don't have to look like what they did in the beginning. Right. Cause you can't be dogmatic about your recovery. Well, I just always go to a, a, a may stop working for you or, Oh, I've always just put my faith in this conception of God, but, but then something happens and if your belief in God starts to falter, then all your sobriety can falter too. So, you know, for me, it's about putting down as many stable footings as you can and doing as many things as you can that, you know, make you feel like, yeah, I'm in a really good place right now. You know, yeah, my sobriety is important to me and I have all these all these other things. I love that. So like anchors in your life, like where you work and your relationship and maybe a friendship group. And so like some anchors that are keeping you stable in life. Exactly right. Um, because those are going to change. You know, something can happen. And one of those, anchors, you know, if it's a relationship with a parent, all of our parents will die at some point. Mm -hmm. A friendship may end. It, it may be a job. I mean, I guess the thing is something as basic as you can't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. <laughs> or you can't sort of judge the worth or value of your life by one dimension of it because something can happen because so much is out of our control. So what we can control are our attitudes and our responses and our beliefs. And so that brings us to the serenity prayer. Yeah, absolutely. You better know the difference. This yeah. was amazing. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, this was great fun. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm always happy to play along. You know, whenever. I mean, this is just important. I, I took doing. moral philosophy in college. Did you? It, yeah, and I loved it. Like, it really, like, I mean, and I'm not just saying this, but, like, 
some of the the literature and stuff of you know the course like it re it really makes you question everything and then you have to then you have to go back and forth and like debate it with the professor and it's i mean it, it's like it's a lot like but right. it but it really like it yeah it almost is it almost encourages like a profound change of like how you see everything well that's it, what it makes you feel it yeah. makes you feel alive it makes yeah. you feel yeah. alive because you're you're in effect asking yourself at the end of the day who do i want to believe who do, who do i want to be what are my beliefs? What are my commitments? What are my values? What are my non-negotiables? How do I want to show up in the world? And if those questions don't enliven and invigorate you, then, you know, warning Will Robinson, danger, danger. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's some serious. Yeah. Talk, I mean, I remember talking to talking about euthanization and stuff like that and all this other stuff. And I, I mean, yep. it was like, it really like put it I out there. I love that though, that you were doing that and you were into it. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, no, it, it really like... <laughs> well, and yeah, and that goes back to my point. I think addicts tend to be very philosophical people. I agree with that. You yeah. know, they're asking these questions and maybe answering them in ways that aren't helpful or productive. Right. Or, but they're searchers. We are searchers. We are seekers. Yeah. So where can everybody, where can our audience find you online or where can everybody find your book? So uh, you can find me online. My website is pegoconnorauthor.com and my book is Higher and Friendly Powers, which is available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any local bookstore, you can order it. And um, that would be great. It's it. This book was, I describe this book as my problem child um, because it took so long to write. It had so many different forms because I think I was working out for me what could be higher and friendly powers. So um, it's meant for all of us who struggle. And so that really is pretty much all of us. When we stop struggling, I don't think that's the good news. Right. You're not on Instagram. I'm not. And they're trying to get I went looking for you. I'm and I trying thought, to oh. do TikTok, or as I called it, the TikTok. It's like, no, no, Peggy. You know, I, I, I want to, as someone, well, we've, we're both pretty successful with TikTok. And I just, I, I, it's my personal belief that I think you would do really well on that platform. Agree. I, you know, I, that's just my thought. If you, well, well, if you, well. Thanks. I, I am on there. I've made one video, and I have one friend. <laughs> oh, you're gonna have two friends. Yeah. You're about to have three friends. What's yeah. your TikTok? I I don't know. Um, I think it's peg.phd. Okay. Well, you can find Narcan Nate and Chasing Heroin. Yeah. And follow. Okay, us I'll, I'll find that. you too. But he's yeah. great because so I was reluctant to get on TikTok because I thought it was just kids dancing, and I'm not gonna do well, that. Yeah. But it's a lot of if you make 60 second now i'm being her social media coach here if you make no, 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 60 second believe me they're telling me this and, I, and i'm yeah. trying and so my brother said to me you look like an old lady trying to sell depends to young people no you don't and no. i said you hard are challenge. vicious you oh, are vicious yeah. hard challenge no you've got the glasses and the cool haircut yeah. no no uh-uh no we're not depends you okay you, that depends. Thank you. You, Thank would you. Do well, I mean, because this is a very interesting topic. You present it very well. You're precise and to the point and how you carry yourself is good. You're calm. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's seriously like it's something that people would it, what your knowledge and how you see things in your book is something that people would be interested in because what you're essentially when you get on social media you're providing 
content for somebody that, that holds value to them. And this is something that will hold value to a lot of people. Well, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. If it helps you get on, because we know the recovery community out there, the people that are out there seeking, they're seeking this. You would actually be helping them. Yeah, I mean, this a is, a huge, I know, this is, this is a, a huge topic. topic. She's like, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I've been hearing it from my my management. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, now right. you two shut up. I just met you. <laughs> no, 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 I appreciate it. I'm just obsessed a... with you. I mean, I'm <laughs> like, I'm like day eight out of being sober, and I'm like sick, and I'm like, oh, this lady's really interesting. I know. Like, that's why I wanted you to this, fucking get here. I was like, hey, where are you? This is worth it. I told you. Well, you know, thank thank you both. I I, I will do this. I, I am going to do it. I appreciate your validation and support. Okay, I mean, ahead. it's just, you know, it's, a, I got, this is when I feel really old. It's like, fair. I'm 42 and I feel old on there. This guy's 29 years old. I'm so 30. Oh, I'm 30. Right. I crossed the plane. Okay. I crossed the plane. Okay. You cross it. You know, well, yeah, as a 57 year old, I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I have to do it and it will become fun. Yes. But we all know that scary things always feel like work. Yes. Gonna so be I, I've just got to make it. I have it's to get that lighter. This, is, this might be the best. This might go on to be the best episode of the season. As I knew it would be. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I, I think this will be a hit. Well, thank you. Well, so I much. appreciate it. Anything I can ever do, let me know. Happy. I would love to play along again. I really appreciate your time and what you're doing. And this has been a really great conversation. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so